Um, I love, you guys remember the show, Kids Save the Darndest Things? Well, they, they, have a, they have a church version of that um, where people submit stories, and I, I have a couple that I wanted to tell you. Um, one little boy, his dad is a pastor, and he's watching him come prepare for a sermon, and the dad is writing stuff down, and they go mark stuff out, and the, the little boy said, Daddy, um, how, do you, how do you get sermons? And, 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 the, and the dad said, well, God gives them to me. And the little boy thought about it, and then he goes, and he said, why are you marking stuff out? Think about that. God's giving it to you. You're marking stuff out. God works with us. Another little boy told his mom, he said, uh, we out of church and said, well, I, I, I know what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be a preacher. And then the mom is just so hard to very touched by this and thinking, God's always calling my little boy. And then she goes, well, you know, why do you want to, why do you, why would you want to do that? Thinking that, you know, God spoke to me and I really feel a passion. And the little boy goes, well, when I'm an adult, he said, I have to come to church anyway, so I might as well be up to the one up there yelling at everybody instead of sitting still and being quiet. So let's pray God thank you uh, for this awesome day thank you Lord that you are speaking to us already and I pray God that we would continue to open our hearts to you that you would awaken us or to the reality of who you are the reality of your kingdom here on the earth that Jesus when you told parables you were trying to reveal to the hearts of of the listeners then and to us, Lord, the, the authenticity, the reality of who you are and your kingdom. And I pray, God, that you would once again awaken our hearts today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so last week we started a series on parables, some parables of Jesus. We're not going to go through all of the parables of Jesus. I'm just picking some um, some very pointed, I think, parables that are re- that, that are revealing uh, God's kingdom. That uh, that Jesus was coming to awaken the hearts uh, again to who He is, who He was, and who God is, and who and, and, and the reality of God's kingdom. So during this series, we're going to be looking at those parables that He told while He was on the earth. Um, why did He tell these stories? He told these stories, his disciples came and asked him, and in Matthew 13, you can read about this, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? And so, he used parables, again, to reveal truths of who he is, who the, what the kingdom of God is, and he said, these mysteries have been revealed to you, and ultimately he would pass this uh, commission on to the disciples, they would begin the church, and ultimately, again, we're here because of what the disciples did, but while he was in the earth, he said, that these mysteries have been given to you, but not to the people, and so he said, I'm, I'm, I'm revealing who God is, His ways, His kingdom, and, and, and Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God, the reality of God, who, why He came, and who He is, revealing the truth of God and His kingdom. But it was also to give people an opportunity to learn the spiritual truths of who Jesus was and, and His kingdom without excuse. And He said, not all would get it. You know, some people have hearts to harden, and they won't. They, they will just reject what he's saying. We saw that then; we see it now. And that Jesus came, and, and God loved the world that He gave His Son, and and and, and there's still people that their hearts are hardened to the reality of the Christian message of who Jesus is. But He wanted to at least give them that opportunity. 
And not all of them wanted the truth. Some were religious, some were Christians, some of them were the church people of the day. They had all the prophecies about Christ, they had uh, of the Messiah coming, and here he is sitting in front of them, and they missed out the Messiah who was sitting across the room or across the way from them on many occasions. What a sad reality that Jesus is right there and they don't recognize that he's the Messiah. The ones that did get it, you can see in Scripture where their hearts awaken. And when we get it, we believe who God says He is, who Jesus is, who He said He is. They open our hearts of salvation and we receive the sacrifice and, we, and you know, the, the illumination, the awakening of our hearts. And we go, God, you, you are who you said you are. There is a reality for your kingdom. Jesus, you did die for me. You gave your life for me. And our hearts awaken to the things of God and we give our hearts and our lives to Him. But as Jesus dealt with the church and religious people of the day, it's very easy for us to get very immune to the message of the gospel and lose the awe and the wonder of the gospel and the cross and the power of Jesus and the kingdom of God and just go, yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah, I did that a long time ago. And, and we can get very cold and very immune to it. And, and, and my, my, my desire is for wherever you are at, if you are searching that God would awaken your heart to the reality of who he is, you would give your life to Jesus. And if you've been serving him for some time, that your heart would be awakened in a new way to who he is. And he does not want us to lose the awe and the wonder of who he is. So last week we started, and I called it Lost and Found Part 1. Today is Lost and Found Part 2. We looked at uh, the first two parables in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. It's something being lost, being found. Remember, Jesus said that um, you know, he has the hundred sheep, and if one wanders away with the shepherd, who's the shepherd? It is him. He's revealing who he is, who God is. He said he would go and search for that sheep, and when he finds him, gently placed him on the shoulder, brings him back. And, and then the reality is that David called us sheep. We are like sheep who have gone astray. Isaiah 53 says that. We are like sheep. Here's the thing about it. And the two audiences that he has there, he's got religious people in the room, and I'm going to look at that in a moment. He's got religious people in the room, the scribes and Pharisees, and he's got these broken people, tax collectors and sinners. They're both sitting. And so he's giving these stories, again, to reveal truth that awaken their hearts. And the lost sheep, obviously he's pointing to the reality of lost people who know they are lost. Jesus makes that distinction. He said, I, I came to call those who know they are lost, who know they need a Savior, not the ones who think they are righteous. Because if you've ever looked at that parable, remember Jesus said he leaves the 99. He doesn't pen them up, and it says this. It says he leaves them in the open country, right? And so he goes, normally... A shepherd would lock them up and make sure they're safe because a sheep that is out in the open is open to predators, open to all kinds of things. And so Jesus goes to the lost one, leaves them in the open. Hey, what's, the, what's going on here? When he goes to find the lost sheep, who, they're really lost, right? Now they're the ones that are lost. You would think that they would follow him and be on mission with him and say, let's go find the one. And now they are amongst themselves in this little spiritual group together. And Jesus said, I've come to call sinners those who know they need a Savior. And so the religious spirit, so he's talking to both groups here. Then he says, you know, this woman lost a coin and she turns the house upside down to find this coin. And we understand that the coin in itself was not 
that much of value as far as monetary, that there's some things that are greater than money, right? And Jesus is making a distinction here that you are greater. You know, there's certain things that you say, this is not for sale. There's too much value on this. And this little coin that this lady turns the house upside down and finds Jesus, that I am like a father who's like a church for those who are lost because you are far more valuable than you realize. And so he tells these stories. And he's getting to the heart of where each group is at. And so then he does those two stories. Then he goes into what we consider probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever told, the, the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to be in that this week and next week. We're going to be looking at these characters from the prodigal son and what God, what Jesus was trying to say about who God is, his kingdom. Before we go there, let's look at, again, the picture of the audience that he's at. All right, so this is Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, they're all sinners, but remember, tax collectors were a special despised group of people. Now, tax collectors and sinners were all, what, drawing near to him. Isn't that a powerful statement? They wanted to be near him. And if we're following Christ, doesn't that mean that people that don't know him Instead of running away from us, shouldn't they be drawn near to us? And if they're not, we better be asking what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. They were drawing near to them. And then Pharisees and scribes, okay, that they're there. They grumbled, mad, they're upset, saying, This man receives sinners and he even eats with them. And they're just upset, they're angry at all of what's going on here. And they see this because they were the moral church people of the day. They wanted these people clean up your act, and then you can tell me, why would Jesus do this? And he was revealing who he was, why he came. These lost, hurting, downcast, broken, lifestyle of sin. And the Pharisees would say, stay away from them, push them away. And they were drawing near to Jesus. Because what we see is him coming. He was on mission. He was on his father's mission. And he said this in, in Luke 19 when Zacchaeus comes to know Christ the chief pastor. He said, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is my mission. It's to transfer people from darkness to light from death to life to being lost and then found. And then what he said to us as the church, as his followers, what he gave the disciples and ultimately gives us is he said, you are on mission with me. To seek and save the lost, I invite you to be on mission, not together in a little club singing Kumbaya and, you know, just with your little group here, but you are called on mission to go out and reach the law. And that was what the Pharisees and scribes were doing. They did not see that the mission of God, the mission of Christ, the mission of the Messiah was to save lost people and they grumbled with disdain and anger. The moral people who kept the law. And interestingly enough, and the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus calls them out because they were technical law keepers. Remember, he said, you know, you have heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. And all of them could say, we've never committed adultery. But then Jesus says, what about your heart? Where, where's your thought like? What are you thinking about? What are you fantasizing about? Because even if it's in your heart, you are guilty of doing this. So they could say, we're technical law keepers, but we are not following his your heart is far from it. You know the law. You were going through the motions, but you have missed the heartbeat of why I came. 
So he tells these two stories, and then he goes into a further story to illustrate this point. So we're going to read the prophet's son through, and then we'll talk a little bit about the good, good father today. All right, so Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continues. Okay, so if you don't understand yet, I'm going to tell you another story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country. A distant country. He was pushing as far as he could away from the father. Pushing away from him, going to a distant country. And there squandered his wealth in wild living. We're not told specifically, but let your imagination kind of figure that out. He spent it on wild living. The older brother who was upset later gives us a little more indication of what happened. After he had spent everything, so he wasted all of the money. There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen. Let's go to the next one. Track on air. There we go. So he went out and hired himself a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This guy is in the worst possible place he could be. Verse 17 is beautiful. This is my prayer for all of our hearts, for the lost, for church people. And I believe Jesus is, is, is really emphasizing this. When he came to his senses, there's an awakening, there's a revival, there's something, the light bulb that comes on, there's illumination. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to share? Have food to share? So he's not, even, he's not even fully aware of the father's love for him yet. He's just comes to his senses and says, something's wrong. And here I am starting to get, I will, set up, I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your highest servants. So he got up, he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, your son's still struggling about his identity, who he is with the father. He's come home. The dad's hugging him and kissing him. Father, I've sinned against heaven. He goes through that reverse thing. And against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found, so they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father is filled with fattened calf because he has been back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, 29, Look, all these years have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. See, see who Jesus is talking to? He's revealing. Kept your 
commands. I've never disobeyed yours. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come from, you killed the fat and cast of him. My son, Father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. Jesus has the broken in the room with him. He has the religious church people in the room with him. And he is revealing an amazing truth about who he is, who the Father is, the kingdom of God. He says there are three characters in this parable that Jesus is talking about. You have the Father, you have the younger son, and you have the older son. They all represent someone. And again, he's telling these parables to reveal the truth of who he is, why he came, who God is, and about the kingdom of God and how it operates. And so he's wanting to awaken the audience and their hearts to the truth. And that will cause them to come to true salvation and transformation. And so because of the the truth in the Bible, they're not confined within time. This story is as much to us as it was to them. And do not miss just because you've heard it a lot of time. And so today I want to look for the next few minutes here. I want to look at the Father in the story. Who he represents, what Jesus is trying to convey about this Father. Now obviously we know he is saying that the Father in the story is God. But you got to understand something. Here's Jesus who has come on the scene. He's ushering in the kingdom of God by his coming. He does not fit the mold of what the religious people thought the Messiah should look like it would be. And so he's kind of he's kind of blasting their idea of what the Messiah is, but here he is right among them and, and so he comes and he is saying things about who God is. Now in the Old Testament, remember as we rewind just for a couple of seconds here, when sin came in the world and Adam and Eve said basically Here's, here's the bottom line of sin. We will be God and we will remove you. God said, I love you, I, I, but I'm going to give you free will. Do not touch this tree. They said, basically, we will be God and you won't and we will make our own decision here. Sin comes in, that fractures the world. We live in brokenness because of the fracture of the world. God's response to that, ultimately, his plan of salvation was to send Jesus. To do what? To reconcile the relationship that has been broken. Remember what it says about God in the garden when he says he, in the cool of the day he would come to Adam and Eve and he would be with them and talk with them. Relationship. He created man, created you and me for a relationship with himself. And because of sin, a holy God pulled away. Because if God said, well, I'm just going to be with them anyway, they would, have, they would have died because sin coming into contact with a holy God, the holy God wins every time. Every time. And so the relationship has been fractured. But God still loves His people, right? God still loves His people. And in the Old Testament, they had to set up the tabernacle. The priest could only go in once a you know, year to the whole most holy place. The priest would go in to make sacrifices. But the high priest would go into the most holy place to make sacrifices before the, you know, on behalf of the people to approach God. And so they were, they had a distance 
with God. They, were, they had to use the high priest. They had to, you know, they, they knew God, the reality of God. Uh, there was a lot of fear. You know, remember on the mountain, and, and the mountain shook, and, and they were afraid. And they said, Moses, you go up and talk to him. We're afraid. And, and they saw the holiness of God. And there were glimpses, and there were little pieces in the Old Testament, um, little types and shadows that he is still a relational God, though. Remember, David got it. That's why I believe God said he's a man after my own heart because he sees that I'm relational. But David still knew that this was not exactly what God had in mind. He said he's relational. The Lord is my shepherd and he loves his feet. He's relational. Even Isaiah the prophet, you know, we did Christmas. Remember it says, and he shall be called, talking about Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting what? Father. So even the prophecy that glimpsed that God is Father. And that, to them, that would have been hard to, like, Father, you know, if He's Creator, He's powerful, he's, and He is all those things, but yet He also is relational. Some of the prophets, you would see a little bit, Zephaniah, you know, one of those seven, nine, three, seventeen, is that He rejoices over you with singing, talking about God. And you see this relational heart of God. But as we're told in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, what does it say about them? Talking about all these Old Testament people, and, 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 and the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's commending them, he said, because they believed, yet they did not see the fulfillment of the promise, right? It's like they, could, they got a glimpse of it, but they couldn't get the promise because the promise would be revealed when Jesus came. They knew the Messiah's coming. The Messiah, you know, David wrote a lot about the Messiah coming. Isaiah, you know, and they, he's coming, but we can only see a glimpse because they believed that God was who he said he was. And now Jesus shows up. And part of what Jesus is going to do is to reconcile the relationship that had been broken. To reconcile God and man together. And he came and he's speaking. He said, you guys need to understand God is the Father in the story. Understand that God wants relationship with people. That's why he created you. He's the Father in this story, and I'm here to reconcile, guys. That's why we have the cross. All those lambs that died back in the Old Testament, they were sacrificed because of it. something had to die because of sin. And Jesus came on the scene, and what did John Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He will die, and it will be the once and for all sacrifice. We won't need to kill any more animals because the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world to restore the relationship between God and man. To Jesus, the beautiful story of reconciliation. Then Paul calls us, what does he say? You are ministers of the same reconciliation now. You've got the power of the Spirit, now you are to reconcile people in God. So Jesus comes and is revealing who God is to go after lost people. We're ministers of reconciliation, we're on mission with Him. So Jesus is saying, God is the Father. He's our Heavenly Father. Remember when he taught the disciples to pray, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. He's revealing that God is a pure, perfect, never-failing Father. And that he's come, and Jesus came to heal the relationship. Jesus became our mediator, our restorer, our redeemer, the one who would save us and bring us back into relationship with God. You know, we couldn't do it. We couldn't reconcile our 
ourselves back to God. We couldn't have enough good works. We couldn't be moral enough. And that's why Jesus had those church people and those moral people. It's not about your morality. It's not about you technically keeping the law. It's realizing how much you desperately need a Savior. Because if morality could get you there, the cross was unnecessary. And that cross we all deserve. And that makes us, that should make us stand, stand in awe and wonder at the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, that you, you stood in my place and you took that for me. So that I could be in right relationship to the problem. Now I have to just receive the sacrifice, repent of my sins, and turn my heart to you. And so they knew God is powerful and awesome, and now Jesus is saying, He's Father. Don't treat Him flippantly. He's still awesome, but He is a Father who deeply loves you. And so let's look at the first response of the Father as the Son, okay? With the Son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger said, and Father, give me my share of the estate. Here's God's first response. So He what? He divided the state and He gave it to Him. Okay, a lot of us, we would say, Man, you don't do that. Right? Doesn't that seem a bit foolish? Because he knows the son's heart is not in the right place. He's not here. But there's something about God. There's something about the Father in this story that says, I'm going to separate, I'm going to give you this. This would have been unbelievably offensive for that day because an inheritance came after your father died. Basically, the son goes, I know you're going to die, but go ahead and give me what's mine now. This was incredibly offensive. So the father did that. He divided. He gave him what he wanted. You know, God will sometimes allow you to have what you think you need or you want. So what is happening here? Jesus is talking about God being this Father. He's saying that the Father in Heaven is sovereign, and there are times that He will allow you to have what you think you cannot live without. And here's the statement here. Um, in His sovereignty, He will let you be the God of your own life. And as I said, this is the core of all sin, living a lifestyle of sin. This is us saying, I don't want God to give me direction. I don't want to have what He has to say on a particular thing. I want my sin. I want darkness instead of light. I want to call my own thoughts. I will be my own God. And God will sovereignly let you do that. In His sovereignty, God will let you be the God of your own life. He won't force you into salvation. He won't force you to do anything you don't want to do. And this Son represents all of us. Either when we are totally rebellion to, in total rebellion to God and rejecting Him, or if we've been walking with Him and we just have certain issues of things in our lives where we want to just be the God in that area. I want to call my own shots. I want to do my Lord, I know you're speaking to my Lord. I know you want me to do this or that. I know you want me to be obedient to what you're saying, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just do that. And so, it's not just talking about total rebellion against God, and that's all of us when we were far away from God and He found us. But it's also sometimes in the day-to-day things that maybe things that we don't want to give up or things that we don't want to obey. 
And what we're saying is we know better. The Son is saying, I know better than you, Father. My ways are better than your ways, Father. I'll make my own rules. You are too strict with me. You are trying to cut me off with my fun and my enjoyment. And I can do a better job at controlling my own life than you. So the boy leaves. He leaves the grace. He leaves the protection of the Father's house. And he becomes his own God, master of his own fate. And here's the thing. The dad lets him go. The dad doesn't chase him down. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. The father lets him go. Now we can understand by the father's other response that this breaks the father's heart. He's grieved. But there is something sovereign about God saying, you be the God of your own life. I'm not going to chase you down. And you go do what you think you need to do. And so we know the story. We're going to look at him. We're going to look at the, 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 the two sons more in depth next week. But the son comes home, right? He loses everything. Comes to the end of himself. And let's look at the father's second response. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for you. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best place to his son. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fat and cat felt that had a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead, and his life again was lost in his son. So he began to celebrate. Here's the second response to the father. We have a father here who's waiting for the son. Not chasing him down. He's going to allow him to be God. But he's waiting. If you can imagine, he's longing for his son. He's longing for the restoration of relationship. This is a father that's looking out the window, maybe through the blinds, and he's waiting for that day. This is a father that's been saying, I want him to come home. And this son makes this, albeit kind of not mature response, he just really still doesn't even know who the father is or who he is, but he makes this kind of sloppy response to the and, and it comes back to the Father, and the Father's heart is so much for the Son that He looks out and He runs to Him. You're still a part of His family. You belong here. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to accept you. It, and it seems almost unfair, right? But it reveals the amazing grace and the mercy and the love of God. Jesus is trying to help this audience understand the height, the depth, the width of the love and mercy of God. And it is an overwhelming thought. He doesn't love like we love. He, his love is far outweighs the love that we can even muster up. And he's saying, you have no idea how much God loves you. And if you could understand a little bit, if you could awaken your heart just to a little bit of how much God loved you, it would change everything about your life. Because it's not that God is celebrating the sinfulness, but He's celebrating the repentance, the return home. And He cleans him up, and He puts a robe on him, and He accepts him, and He hugs him, this kid that smells like a pig. 
He's kicking, he's weeping over him. And Jesus is saying, let me paint a picture of who God is. Creator, Yahweh, the undefinable one, the unmentionable one, where they could hardly even say his name. Yet he is personal and he receives us into himself. This is God. And he wants relationship. He wants to restore us. Let's look at this next statement here. I said, as God will commonly allow you to be God of your own life. Why? Because He wants to reveal to us how desperately we need Him. We're horrible at being God, if you haven't noticed. If you haven't been horrible yet, just wait. We are horrible at being God. We will wreck it at some point. And we live in a society that is so self-reliant and me-centered and we maybe not even say it, but we have become the masters of our own fate. We will make our own decisions. I will do this and that. And we are horrible at it. And in God's mercy, He says, go ahead, be God. Not in His meanness, not in His harshness, but He says, I want you to understand why I came. I want you to understand that you were never intended to be God of your life. That's His place. And then when we understand and we have that revelation and it says we come to our senses, what does the Father do? He says, I've been waiting for you to figure it out, for you to, for it to hit you. And now I embrace you and I restore you. And I love you enough not to leave you in your sin. Understand there is the mercy and grace and love of God, but there's still the holiness of God. And He embraces us with all of it. The woman caught in adultery, what did he say to her? I don't condemn you. We say, thank you, Jesus. He doesn't condemn you. But he said, go and sin no more. In other words, stop being the God of your own life. You're going to go off a cliff and you will, your lifestyle will lead you to destruction. So mercy and holiness that, that Jesus offers both. I love you. I accept you just the way you are. If you smell like a pig, but come here. You look like a pig, but come here. I embrace you. I hold you. I restore you. But that's not to restore you to go back and live like a pig again. It's to be who you created or created to be in my house. So he does have a standard. And guys, he does this because he loves us. Hebrews 12 talks about the discipline. God, you know discipline is an awesome thing. And the writer of Hebrews does not diminish that he said discipline. It's, it's not that fun, but it produces a harvest of right living and understanding. Not again, not just morality. The Pharisees understood morality, but he said, I love him so much that I want to do things his way. Does that make sense? Instead of saying, I just want to follow the rules to get God to like me more, and so I won't do this, 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 and this, and then you just... This is a Christianity, right? What are you doing? I'm not doing a lot of things. Instead of, He loves me so deeply. And Jesus is trying to reveal the love. I, I have never been overwhelmed by such great love that the Father has in me. Because of that, I want to live this way. He treats us as children. The Hebrew says that. Rejoice when He disciplines you. Rejoice when He convicts you. Because he, He's identifying Himself as your dad. You know when a kid is running around a muck? You know what? Tracking with me. 
um, and they're running wild, what's everybody doing that's not the parents? Where's their mom and dad at? Right? And then when you see that embarrassed parent make that beeline for that child, <laughs> you know, there it goes, and then the kid usually runs on them. He's crashing along because then everybody goes, oh, that's the dad. There goes the mom. <laughs> because there's an identification that that's the mom, that's the dad. And he just said, God, this becomes a rejoice because he's the dad that says, I love you enough. I love you enough to be your dad. And everybody goes, oh, that's the dad. It's a beautiful picture. Rejoice when God disciplines you because he wants to be your dad. And so God will sovereignly allow you to be God in your own life because he wants to reveal how desperately we need him. He wants to reveal that ultimately when we become God, the end game, the end result is failure. That's who God is. Believe who God is. Next week, we're going to look at these two boys. The contrast. The similarities and the contrast of these two sons. So we're going to end today with communion. I think what better, what a better way to end today than to, again, Jesus coming and saying, I want to reconcile relationship between God and His people. That we couldn't do it on our own. And so the bridge back to God, the, the, the restoration of relationship, this bridge, if you will, with the cross of Christ. And that when we receive communion, what we're doing is we, we're, we're remembering what Jesus did. We're remembering the love of God. And so my prayer is that, again, that our hearts are awakened, that although we may have done this a lot of times, taking communion, and we eat the crack and drink the juice, eat the crack um, remember, Jesus instill, instituted this call to do it until Christ returns to remember how much God loves you. That that was what we deserved in Jesus to upon himself. That we're sitting on death row waiting for execution, and Jesus walks up, unlocks the stuff, says, I'll pay the price for you, now come out. And we go, whoa, that's pretty amazing. If you were in that real situation, you would understand what a gift. That's exactly what happened eternally, that Jesus stood and absorbed the wrath of God on sin for me and you to restore relationship with God. And he says, what Jesus said in this parable, God is that Father. That when you respond and you go, God, I recognize. I'm a sinner. I recognize that I'm, I've been my own God in certain areas. You know what that does to his heart when you're sincere about that? Jesus tells what it does to his heart. He runs, he embraces he holds you and takes you in just the way you are. And then He lovingly restores you and begins to change you and transform you. That's the story of the gospel. That's who the Father is. So let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you, God, that as we receive communion this morning, I pray, Lord, that we would in a new way of awe and wonder fix our eyes on you, the, real, the reality of who you are, your love for us, 
that you are a good, perfect, awesome Father. And you love us, Lord, right where we're at, but you also love us enough to not leave us there. And so I've got to pray for a new, a new awakening of the reality of who you are as our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.